Good evening, everyone. My name is David Elwood. I'm dean here at the Harvard Kennedy School, and welcome to one of the events that we are most proud of and most excited to celebrate each year. Um, this is a, uh, the, the Goldsmith Awards, uh, which are designed to prove that investigative reporting still exists and thrives and indeed is vital and critical to everything we believe that's important in a democracy. Um, I also want to start by uh, noting a couple of folks that aren't here. Walter Shorenstein uh, is unable to join us, but uh, he and his wife Phyllis have really helped make this entire program possible. Uh, the Shorenstein Center has stood for a very long time now uh, for the best in media, but also forward-looking thinking about what's next. Uh, where do we go? How do we make this all work in the coming centuries and the, the uh, going forward? So again, the Joan Sorenstein Center on the Press, Politics, and Public Policy uh, is the sponsor of this and has put the pieces together and so forth. Walter himself is quite a remarkable man. Uh, he has uh, he's a, been very successful in real estate, but he's also been long involved in democratic politics. Perhaps most relevant to the current scene is he's one of the early and significant benefactors to one Speaker Nancy Pelosi, who's been much in the news of late. And so it's an interesting time uh, going forward. Uh, and so, it, it's, so we're very sad that he can't be with us, but we do have uh, Cindy here with us and others, so we're really very welcome. Glad to have you here and, and uh, appreciate your, your joining us. The, um, I would also like to briefly note that Alex Jones is unable to be with us tonight. And uh, this is because his, his uh, colleague and wife, uh, Susan Tift, is gravely ill. And so uh, she is very much, they're both very much in our prayers and our thoughts. And I ask you all to, to be thinking of them in this very, very difficult time. Um, what I'd like to now do, do is, is turn the evening over to Tom Patterson, who has uh, stepped in uh, at this time to, to, uh, to take, a, take a look at and provide the kind of background and information that you all need at this very exciting and important moment. Tom is the Bradley Professor of Government and the Press at the Shorenstein Center. He also serves as the research director there. Uh, his first book, The Unseeing Eye, was named by the American Association of Public Opinion as one of the 50 most influential books in, on public opinion in the last half of the 20th century. Uh, so quite a remarkable thing. His 1993 book on the media's role, Out of Order, received the American Political Sciences Association's uh, uh, Grabber Award as the best book of the decade in political communications. So Tom doesn't do things that are only like the best book of the year. He's going for like the best book of the decade or even the half century. Um, he's also written a, a couple of general textbooks uh, on American democracy and we the people. Uh, his most recent book, uh, The Vanishing uh, Voter, analyzes and identifies why voters have turned away from participatory politics uh, and was deemed a wise and skeptical account of the contemporary electorate by the Washington Post. But equally important, Tom has been a source of great insight and ideas uh, for the center, for students, uh, and for people well outside uh, these uh, halls. So it's with my, it is my very great pleasure to turn the, the microphone over to Tom Patterson. I knew I'd have to bring my own water uh, to the... <laughs> Thank you, David. Uh, this night is bittersweet for the Shorenstein Center. Uh, it marks the 19th anniversary of the Goldsmith Awards Program, uh, the highlight of our year. Uh, 
it's unquestionably the single best thing that we do. But as David mentioned, uh, Alex Jones is not here. And we all wish that he was the one uh, standing here handing out tonight's awards. It's a task that, uh, that he loved uh, and cherished, and, uh, and our thoughts are with uh, he and, and Susan. Uh, the Goldsmith Awards were made possible through the efforts of Robert Greenfield. Bob is a Philadelphia lawyer, now retired, a graduate of the Harvard Law School. Bob had a client named Berta Marks Goldsmith, also of Philadelphia, who said she was going to leave him her entire estate, and she did. Bob didn't want the money, but did want to find a way to honor her life. As it happens, she had a passion for clean government and a love for news. And it just so happened that Bob, on a beach in Florida, struck up a conversation with a perfect stranger, Gary Oren, a member of our faculty. That chance encounter led Bob to the office of Marvin Kelb, the founding director of the Shorenstein Center, and the result of that meeting is the Goldsmith Awards program. Bob chairs the Greenfield Foundation, which funds the program. Regretfully, Bob is not here this evening, but others from the Greenfield family are here, as well as some from the Greenfield Foundation. Mike Greenfield, who serves as a Goldsmith Prize judge, is here. Joni Greenfield, Mike's mother, is also here, as is Ben Greenfield and Bill Epstein. So are Charles Kahn, a foundation trustee, and his wife Barbara. The Greenfield family's unbending support is what makes this night possible. And I'd be honored if the members of the Greenfield family and those associated with the Greenfield Foundation would stand up so that we can express our appreciation for all that you do. And I'd like to second uh, what David said about uh, Walter Shorenstein. Uh, there, would no, there would be no Shorenstein Center without Walter, who founded it as a memorial to his daughter Joan, a respected CBS journalist who died far too young of breast cancer. Walter has been an incredibly generous donor, but also a wise consul. Uh, a year before the financial markets collapsed in September of 2008, Walter was prodding us, and if you know Walter, that's putting it mildly. Uh, Walter was prodding us to alert economic reporters to the danger signs. Walter was with us last year uh, for the Goldsmith Awards held shortly after his 94th birthday, uh, which he celebrated somewhat quietly. He turned 95 a month ago at a gala bash in San Francisco that featured Bill Clinton as the speaker and some of the best food and wine this side of Paris. Uh, I think Walter's still recovering from, uh, from the birthday bash, and we wish he were here, and we wish him well. Let's get to the awards. Uh, we're going to start uh, with the book prizes. Uh, two Goldsmith book prizes uh, are awarded each year, one for the best academic book in the field of press and politics, the other for the best trade book in that field. And I'd like to thank uh, the judges that selected this year's winners, Alex Jones, Matt Baum, Marion Just. I was also a judge uh, in that committee. Service on that committee has a reward. 
stacks of free books, many of whom, many of which are very good, and we're here tonight to honor the two best. You've heard, no doubt, that the internet is revolutionizing grassroots democracy. We even have examples of that, the Obama campaign, for one. But that's not the full truth, perhaps not even the half-truth. This year's winner of the Goldsmith Book Prize in the academic category provides a very different portrayal with mounds of evidence to support it. In the myth of digital democracy, Matthew Heinemann shows that the new online bosses are not all that different from the old ones, except they're vastly more efficient. As Cass Sunstein writes, Heinemann has produced one of the very few best books ever on the relationship between the internet and democracy. It is indispensable reading. Two years ago, when the American Political Science Association's annual convention was being held in Boston, I had the pleasure of sitting on a downtown Boston bench talking with a young scholar who had just finished a book on the internet. I was intrigued by his thesis, and now I have the pleasure of giving him the Goldsmith Book Award. Matt Heinemann, please step up to accept the award for your remarkable book, The Myth of Digital Democracy. By coincidence, uh, or at least I hope so, I also happen to know this year's trade book winner. Uh, John Maxwell Hamilton's Journalism's Roving Eye, A History of American News Gathering, is the deep and rich history of America's foreign correspondence. It is, as one reviewer said, a magisterial work. It is also, as the Washington Post's ombudsman wrote, the most authoritative book ever written about the evolution of American foreign reporting. At a time when foreign bureaus are being shuttered, journalism roving eye is a vivid reminder of our collective debt to the talented foreign correspondents who over the decades brought the world to our doorsteps and into our living rooms. John Maxwell Hamilton, Jack as he's known, was a Shorenstein Center Fellow in 2002. Before that, Jack spent two decades as a working journalist, and he's now the Dean of Journalism at LSU. As of tonight, Jack is also the recipient of the Goldsmith Book Award. Jack, please step up to receive the award for Journalism's Roving Ed. Uh, before introducing each of the six finalists for the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting, I'd like to thank the judges of that competition. They had the laborious task of poring over more than 100 entries, many of which consisted of a lengthy series of stories, not just one story. As I mentioned earlier, Mike Greenfield served as a judge. So did Sarah Cohen, a foreign, former investigative reporter at the Washington Post, who is now Knight Professor of the Practice of Journalism and Public Policy at Duke, 
Sarah was last year's Goldsmith Prize co-winner. Another judge was Dan Okrent, the inaugural public editor of the New York Times and a former Shorenstein Center fellow and visiting lecturer. I want to thank also Anthony Williams, the former mayor of Washington, D.C., who's now at the Kennedy School as the William H. Bloomberg lecturer. Finally, there's Bill Mitchell, a former reporter, editor, and bureau chief who now heads the News Transformation Program and the International Program at the Pointer Institute. Bill's a former Shorenstein Center fellow. Alex Jones, as the Shorenstein Center director, chairs the selection committee, but does not have a vote, nor does any other permanent member of the center. Once the judges have announced their selections, we announce all six finalists, but we will withhold until this ceremony the identity of the award winner. In addition to the six finalists, the judges this year singled out the Seattle Times for a special citation. Their stunning coverage of the assassination of four local police officers doesn't fit the classic definition of investigative reporting. But it does demonstrate how the intelligent and committed use of every imaginable, imaginable repertorial resource can enlighten and inform the public. On the Sunday morning of Thanksgiving weekend 2009, four police officers were shot to death as they sat inside the Forza coffee shop in Parkland, Washington, drinking coffee, working on their laptops. Within an hour of the murders, the Seattle Times was the first media outlet to obtain the name of the suspected shooter. During the subsequent 40-hour manhunt, the Times employed every reporting tool and mode of communication available to them to engage with a riveted community. They used ingenuity and state-of-the-art technology to compile a mountain of information on the suspect, which was posted online throughout the day. The Monday morning newspaper featured an extensive front-page story about the suspect, Maurice Clemens, who had been granted clemency by then-governor of Arkansas, Mike Huckabee, and had at least five felony convictions in Arkansas and at least eight felony charges in Washington. Throughout the week, they focused on the case and published long profiles of the slain officers and their killer. This was newspapering at its very best. Well, the reporters from the Seattle Times, Mark Higgins, John DeLeon, Tiffany Campbell, please stand and be recognized. It is now my honor to introduce each of the six finalists for the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting, which I shall do in alphabetical order by news organization. The first Goldsmith finalist is Sean Murphy of the Boston Globe. For many of his 30 years as a journalist, Sean Murphy has been the scourge of those who would abuse the public coffers in Massachusetts. But 2009 was a banner year both for the number of former officials taking public money they hadn't earned and for the number exposed by Sean Murphy's reporting. Take, for instance, the case of John Brennan, a former state senator who had also logged 19 years of volunteer service on his local library board. 
During his final four years on the board, Brennan had rarely attended the board's monthly meetings, missing 85% of them. But that didn't stop him from claiming that service to more than double his lifetime government pension. Or how about the case of Timothy A. Bassett and Catherine O'Leary? They were colleagues on a county pension board and used their positions to pad each other's retirement checks. O'Leary, a former county treasurer, was given credit for working as a summer playground instructor decades ago as a teenager. Bassett, a former state representative, was awarded an annuity that had it not been rescinded as a result of Sean's reporting, would have boosted his retirement income by more than 60,000 a year. Throughout 2009, Sean Murphy exposed officials who were exploiting loopholes in the state retirement system to enrich themselves. Sean's work almost single-handedly prodded the state legislature and Governor Deval Patrick to overhaul the state's pension laws. That's watchdog journalism at its best. May I ask Sean Murphy of the Boston Globe to stand for his series, Gaming the System, Public Pensions the Massachusetts Way. <laughs> At a time when our troops are being asked to make sacrifices, it is appalling to find that soldiers are being systematically abused by fellow soldiers. The seasoned investigative team at KHOU Television in Houston was shocked to learn what was happening in the Texas National Guard. It is a story of commanders who were not only corrupt, but who took pleasure in degrading female officers. We're not talking about a few off-color remarks. We're talking about a systematic effort among the Texas Guard's male leadership to drive women from the ranks. One of their practices was the Vagisil Award, a pink foam crown given to the young woman, given to a young woman at the annual leadership camp. It was given, the Guard leaders said, to recognize her, quote, bitching and whining. The winner was forced to parade in front of her classmates wearing a trash bag for a cape. A female Johns Hopkins Medical School graduate who had given up her civilian practice after 9-11 was discharged after grounding her male commanding officer for being overweight. A female colonel who had risked her life in Iraq and won a bronze star was pushed out by her Texas commander after she returned home. When female officers complained about what was happening, the Inspector General's office barely took notice. At KHOU's probe, as KHOU's probe deepened, it turned out that the Texas National Guard's leadership was rotten in other ways as well, misappropriating and stealing state and federal funds. The Guard's leadership borrowed illegally from funds intended to build troop morale and double-billed the state and federal governments for the same work hours. It was all there and was exposed, thanks to KHOU and a female military auditor who had also been forced out when she discovered what the command was doing. KHOU's stories got policymakers' attention and two investigations were launched. The governor of Texas fired the three top generals running the guard, and for the first time in the state's history, a woman 
was appointed commanding general. In addition, the FBI opened a probe, and the Travis County District Attorney's Office opened a criminal investigation into the Guard's activities. Three new state laws were passed, which imposed tighter oversight on the Guard, both by the Governor's Office and the State Assembly. I would like to ask Mark Greenblatt, David Razig, Keith Tomshi, Robin Hughes, and Chris Hainau of KHOU-TV Houston to stand for under fire, discrimination, and corruption in the Texas National Guard. <laughs> Late in 2008, Raquel Rutledge got a phone call from a government worker who had tried without success to get officials to respond to her concerns about Wisconsin's child welfare system. The phone call led Rutledge, a part-time investigative reporter for the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, to probe, dig, and finally publish more than 50 stories on corruption in the state's taxpayer-subsidized child care welfare system. One child care provider, for example, was using her daycare business to help a friend defraud mortgage lenders of $2 million. Another provider happened to be a madam. She ran a prostitution ring who was married to a notorious Milwaukee crime boss. Payments to her came to light when she was found with a loaded machine gun and live grenade on a kitchen counter within reach of her children. But this story isn't one of a few rotten apples. Rutledge's year-long series, Cashing In on Kids, uncovered child care oper operators conspiring with parents to falsify attendance records, enabling them to reap millions of dollars for phantom daycare. She found a trail of fabricated jobs and fictitious companies. She exposed more than a dozen child care centers with direct connections to drug rings and identified hundreds of providers with criminal records. She also detailed how a provider with a history of violations amassed three million from taxpayer subsidies, building a mansion with an indoor pool and an indoor basketball court. Government officials at first refused to release records that could help her identify cheaters, but Rutledge overcame that with good old-fashioned reporting. She gathered thousands of documents from a growing circle of whistleblowers and conducted stakeouts of cheaters. She would, for instance, watch and wait for kids to show up at child care centers across southeastern Wisconsin, but the kids never came. By the time her reporting was concluded, the state had been goaded into action. Funding to more than 130 child care providers was cut and government oversight was tightened. Five new laws were enacted aimed at eliminating fraud and keeping criminals out of daycare. In all, Rutledge's reporting identified more than two, 20 million in suspicious payments, and in her, in her more than 50 stories, not one factual claim was challenged. For cashing in on kids, I ask Raquel, Raquel Rutledge of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel to stand. Raquel. <laughs> Mike Easley left North Carolina's governorship in January 2009 after eight years. 
He was said to have been elected because of an endorsement by Andy Griffith, the beloved sheriff of North Carolina's idyllic and mythical town, Mayberry. But the Easley administration was no Mayberry. Although there were widespread rumors of corruption, payoffs, and good old boy deals with developers, the Easley administration kept a lid on its activities. Andrew Curlis, a reporter at the Raleigh News and Observer, began asking for records in 2005, but Easley wouldn't release them. But when a new governor came into office in 2009, Curlis got access to the records and to the tale they tell. He blended records from dozens of sources into databases, piecing together information about the governor's excursions on private aircraft, sweet deals for Easley supporters in state regulatory agencies, and such things as the governor's 137,000 special deal on a coastal lot from a developer who had received a $200 million state project. Ultimately, the series executive privilege, the perks of power, comprised more than 175 stories and exposed countless lies and secrets. The articles were published despite fierce resistance from their subjects who either refused interviews or lied during the interviews. Three times, a prominent trial lawyer representing Easley threatened legal action if a story was published. All three stories were published without a subsequent lawsuit or correction. Malfeasance at North Carolina State University was part of Curlis's reporting and led to the resignation of the chancellor, the provost, and the chair of the board of trustees. And Easley's wife was fired from her plum job as executive in residence at NC State. Federal and state prosecutors are conducting criminal investigations of Easley, one of his top aides, Easley's bagman, according to reports, is about to stand trial. Legislative leaders have started to adopt broad ethics reforms, and several members of state boards and commissions have resigned. The Easley scandal was uncovered due to superb journalism. Executive Privilege, The Perks of Power, by Andrew Curlis and the staff of the Raleigh News and Observer. Please stand. News reporting is often collaborative. This next story involves a reporter from The Nation magazine who went on to work for the online investigative reporting organization ProPublica, who then attracted the attention and reporting talent of editors and reporters at the New Orleans Times-Picayune and a producer at PBS's Frontline. Nearly every kind of news organization except radio became involved in the telling of the story. The story began with a tip to reporter A.C. Thompson, and I want to thank A.C. A.C. took Alex's course this morning and uh, taught the course, and uh, uh, it, was, it was of great help to us. Uh, the story began with a tip to reporter A.C. Thompson about white vigilante violence in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. White residents at New Orleans' Algiers Point neighborhood, fearing for their safety and their property in the hurricane's aftermath, had formed an ad hoc militia and carried out a string of armed attacks on African Americans without interference or repercussions from authorities. Donnell Harrington, a 32-year-old African American, was walking through Algiers Point 
when he was shot in the neck. A second shotgun blast hit him from behind and sprayed his two companions. Three armed white men taunted them and yelled, get him. Over the course of an 18-month investigation, A.C. Thompson interviewed shooters, gunshot survivors and witnesses, police officers, forensic pathologists, firefighters, historians, medical doctors, and private citizens, and studied more than 800 autopsy and death reports. Katrina's Hidden Race War and Body of Evidence were published in January, in the January 5th, 2009 issue of The Nation. Thompson's reporting led the FBI to launch a probe described by a former prosecutor as the most significant investigation in any FBI office in the country, and Frontline assigned a top producer to work on the story. In the fall of 2009, editors at the Times-Picayune proposed a col collaboration with Publica and five major articles detailing the failure of the New Orleans Police Department appeared in the newspaper in December 2009. Their reporting revealed that police shot 10 civilians after Katrina, at least four of whom died. The series revealed deep flaws in the police department's efforts to investigate their own actions. Law and Disorder by A.C. Thompson, Brendan McCarthy, Laura Maggi, Gordon Russell, and Tom Jennings. Please stand. On June 22, 2009, one of Washington's Metro subway trains rammed into another train, killing nine people and injuring 80 in the deadliest accident in the system's history. Metro's general manager described the accident as a freak occurrence. Reporters at the Washington Post began an investigation and found a set of hidden failures. Their investigation featured one of the hallmarks of great investigative reporting tenacious creative work involving documents, key sources. Metro executives gave faulty information to the Post team and ordered staffers not to answer questions. Metro officials even asked other transit agencies to submit ghostwritten letters of complaint to the Post. For months, Metro refused to release a single sheet of paper in response to dozens of Freedom of Information Act requests. The Post reporters developed sources with access to records and resorted to filing document requests with third-party agencies around the nation. Soon, they had thousands of pages of revelatory records and databases. Analysis of the material showed that the Metro's crash avoidance system had failed repeatedly before the collision <clears throat> that Metro executives had concealed. Two trains had come dangerously close to colliding on Capitol Hill. Three trains narrowly escaped disastrous collisions in a tunnel under the Potomac River. Moreover, Metro officials had sandwiched older subway cars between newer, sturdier ones in a move not to protect passengers, as Metro claimed, but in a PR move to give the public a false sense of security. Records showed that safety oversight in the District of Columbia was entrusted to a toothless, threadbare organization that had no office, no employees, no phone, and no website. More than 100 safety deficiencies identified after other accidents and audits had been uncorrected for years. The impact of the Post series was substantial. 
Metro officials instituted a major reorganization with five top managers leaving or being reassigned. Congressional hearings were held and the Government Accountability Office and the Federal Transit Administration began looking into the, to the revelations. In November, the White House announced that the federal government would welcome the opportunity to take over regulation of the country's subway and light rail systems. Death on the rails. Joe Stevens, Lena Sun, Lindsay Layton for the Washington Post. Please stand. Now, before announcing the winner of the Goldsmith Prize for investigative reporting, I would like to note the generosity of the Goldsmith Fund of the Greenfield Foundation, which supports these prizes. The winning finalist or finalist team gets a prize of $25,000. It's a big prize, but all of the finalists deserve a reward, as well as the recognition. The other finalists or finalist teams each receive $10,000. I would like to ask all of the finalists to stand once again, and please join me in expressing our appreciation for the work that they do. And the winner of the Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting for 2009 is? And the answer is, I don't know. Um, this is for the first time in the history, the 19-year history of the Goldsmith Awards program. Uh, the person standing here was not on the committee. Uh, and so I was not privileged uh, to the information. Uh, and so, uh, the result is going to be as much of a surprise to me as it is to you. Thank you. <laughs> this is the mayonnaise jar, you know, if you're an old Johnny Carson fan. Uh, right. The winner of the 2010 Goldsmith Prize for Investigative Reporting is Raquel Welch, Rutledge of the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel. <laughs> Maybe that's a new tradition, right? Where we, uh, uh. I'm proud to introduce the recipient of this year's Goldsmith Career Award, David Fanning of Frontline. David Fanning has been executive producer of Frontline since its first season in 1983. In 2010, after 27 seasons and more than 530 films, Frontline is America's longest-running investigative documentary series on television. The series has won all of the major awards for broadcast journalism, 42 Emmys, 
24 DuPont Awards, 13 Peabody Awards, 11 Robert F. Kennedy Journalism Awards, and an unprecedented three Gold Baton Awards. David Fanning began his filmmaking career as a young journalist in South Africa. His first two films, produced for BBC TV, dealt with race and religion in his home country. He came to the United States in 1973 and began producing and directing local and national documentaries on the West Coast before coming to WGBH Boston in 1977 to start the international documentary series World. As executive producer, he produced and presented over 50 films for PBS in five years. One of those films, developed in collaboration with director Anthony Thomas, won the 1982 Emmy Award for Best Investigative Documentary. In 1982, David Fanning began the development of Frontline. Over the years, the series has involved well over 200 producers and at least as many journalists, covering a wide range of domestic and foreign stories. In 1995, Frontline developed one of the world's first deep content websites by putting interviews, documents, and additional editorial materials on the web. The series made its journalism transparent, affecting the nature and content of broadcast journalism more generally. As of 2009, there were over 85 hours of full-length documentaries streamed on the series website, one of the largest sites of its kind. The site has 55 million page views annually. In 2001, David Fanning's determination to bring more foreign stories to American audiences led to the creation of Frontline World, a television magazine-style series of programs designed to encourage a new, younger generation of producers and reporters. The emphasis has been on bringing a largely unreported world to viewers through a series of journals and journeys and encounters, excuse me. But words don't do justice uh, to someone whose contribution has been through the visual medium of television. So uh, we'd like to show you a short video uh, on David Fanning uh, and Frontline. In the early 1980s, America was just coming out of a devastating recession. Ronald Reagan was president. A secret war was being played out in Central America. AIDS was about to emerge as the new plague. And a terrorist bombing of a marine barracks in Beirut would put America on warning. Like now, it was a serious world and public television responded with a new documentary series. From the very beginning, the idea was really to try to grab hold of the best of narrative documentary, of finding that connection between journalism and filmmaking. It always set its sights as being a series about ideas but that at the heart of those ideas, there would have to be stories. You communist son of a bitch, you asked for the Klan, here we are. There have been times that I've thought, how can you murder your own child? If the decision's wrong, if we're playing God, then I'll have to live with that. 
and I'm willing to. One of the birds went down, one of the one of the choppers went down. We got ambushed right there on that intersection. The volume of fire was just so intense that I don't know how any of us made it out alive. More than 500 films and countless awards later, Frontline is the only place on television to consistently, week in and week out, take the long, hard view of the day's tough subjects. The series has turned into a record of the last 25 years. It has been, in the best sense of journalism, as the first draft of history. Archiving, in effect, foreign policy, bungles, domestic tensions, cultural upheavals, and miscarriages of justice. When the jury find the defendant guilty of first-degree sexual offense, I wanted to just scream at them, you're wrong. He's not guilty. Much of television is about making disposable television. What we try to do is make television that lasts. Television that says, we respect your intelligence. We respect your curiosity. We respect that you value ideas as much as we do. This will be a monumental struggle of good versus evil. 9-11 was a story that we've been covering for almost 20 years, back into the 1980s uh, and the first war on terrorism. We were, over those weeks after 9-11, using the best of our producers, their knowledge and their experience, and the institutional memory of the series in service of a collection of films that would become tremendously valuable in the weeks immediately after 9-11. The first weekend after the attacks of September 11th, some people at Camp David were arguing that the war against terrorism should include Saddam Hussein. Frontline has gone on to devote over 40 hours of documentaries to the struggles that followed. Are you okay? Garcia! On the ground in Iraq. Got hit, came back up, mortally wounded. He went out fighting and he died like he should in the offices of power back in Washington. There's a war going on inside the administration. They don't even agree what they're doing in Iraq. And in search of Al-Qaeda in the remotest regions of Afghanistan and Pakistan. The situation in Afghanistan is more dire than we've seen publicly portrayed. It has been a commitment to the most important story in our country's recent history. Frontline has any legacy, it's about saying we can take on difficult, tough subjects, do them smartly and thoughtfully, and we can live up to the promise of television. If we give up on the idea of doing these kinds of films, then we give up on the idea of this medium in the best of what it can be.
David Fanning. Thank you, Tom. Thank you so much. Good evening. Thank you so much, Tom. To Alex Jones, of course, and to the Shorenstein Center, Dean Elwood and the Kennedy School, and of course, the Greenfield family. This is truly a great honor. I'm moved and humbled uh, to be counted among the distinguished journalists who have given, been given this award before and to be in the company of so many talented reporters and editors here in the forum this evening. My congratulations to them all. This may be my career award, but there are lots of careers that lie behind it. Literally hundreds of journalists, talented producers and reporters, and teams of people who worked with them all of whom did the long, hard work that became Frontline. The greatest award for me to, has been to have worked with them all, often very closely and with extraordinary trust. Their work and those experiences on the road and in the edit rooms taught me most of what I know about how to be a journalist and an editor. I didn't get to go to journalism school. There wasn't any such thing in South Africa. In fact, there wasn't any television. The, the government decided not to let it into the country because it was far too subversive until 1976. But at university, I did get to edit the student newspaper uh, with, in a place where ideas were considered too dangerous. Some of my friends went to jail for reporting them. But I also managed to make a documentary with a borrowed camera and some precious 16-millimeter film. And uh, in Soweto, we didn't know what we were doing. We had to invent the form ourselves. But it was my ticket out of South Africa, first to the BBC and then to California, where I'd earlier spent a, some time as an exchange student. That's how I walked into a small public television station in 1973, volunteered, hung out, got a job, and began making short segments and documentaries. It was a hands-on apprenticeship in broadcast journalism. And the reason uh, it is also, of course, the beginning of my career in public television. And it's, the reason I'm still in it is because of what happened after that. In 1977, I was invited to come to Boston to WGBH. My boss, Peter McGee, who's here this evening, became my mentor and who uh, took a chance on me. He offered this young itinerant filmmaker journalist the job of executive producer of an international documentary series. What I found at WGBH was a culture of inquiry an extraordinary place that celebrated ideas. It was a place that valued debate in programs like The Advocates and took on tough subjects like Arabs and Israelis and Vietnam and television history. That respect for a wide range of opinions underwrote the journalism I found at WGBH. It was also a place that respected conclusions honestly come by. Journalism has an obligation to fairness, but when it uncovers uncomfortable truths, it has an obligation to publish without fear or favor. In 1980, I wrote and produced a program for World called Death of a Princess, which made very serious charges against a senior member of the Saudi royal family. In effect, it accused the king's elder brother of murder. It caused an international uproar and led to the breaking of diplomatic relations between Saudi Arabia and Great Britain. There was a serious threat of similar action here in the United States. It was a time of oil shortages, and the State Department and members of Congress leaned very heavily on PBS to cancel the broadcast. At WGBH, my management was faced with their own pressures 
The major underwriter for Masterpiece Theatre was Mobile Oil, which took out ads in the New York Times protesting the program. Then I remember being called into a meeting with Peter and Henry Beckton, the station's president. Henry asked me if I was confident about the journalism in the program. I said I was, and that we could stand behind it. Then he said, well, in that case, if the political pressures get too tough on PBS, we've rented space on the transponder of the satellite, and we're broadcasted to the country from Boston. <clears throat> I've never been prouder of the place I worked for. As it turned out, the system stood firm and the sky didn't fall, and as Peter McGee said later, it put a chock behind the wheel of public television. It proved that the system could withstand great pressures and in many ways laid the ground for Frontline. When we started Frontline in 1983, we were the subject of an article called The Last Great Hope for the TV Documentary. Already the news magazines uh, were, <clears throat> were the, the magazine programs had become the network's um, new profit centers. We were being given an old-fashioned luxury time. It's the greatest treasure we've been given in public broadcasting. Time, of course, to think, to rethink, time to shoot and edit, and of course, most importantly, to re-edit and rewrite. And the greatest gift is broadcast time, an uninterrupted hour or even a series of hours to tell a complicated tale. Yet they're hard films to make, these documentaries, to take the rough material of journalism, the interviews, the stock footage, the documents, the guilty buildings, and to weave them into smart stories, to bring filmmaking's need for narrative structure and dramatic arc to journalism and still remain fair to the facts. It's a potentially dangerous alchemy. The medium can be so manipulated. Words, pictures, music can be turned to polemical purposes. We see that more and more these days, especially in theatrical documentaries that get so much attention. Don't be impressed by them. They're very easy to make. Polemics always are. It's much harder to make a work of tough journalism. So we looked for people who understood that we were going to make good documentary films, but we were really making journalism and would do so within an editorial structure that every line, that every image would be reviewed. I was fortunate that day I worked into WGBH to meet someone who'd helped me do that. Louis Wiley, who's also here this evening, was a graduate of the Advocates, a lawyer by training, and beneath a kind and gentle nature, a fierce defender of our journalistic standards and practices. He became my conciliary, my executive editor. He's recently retired. But the man with the blue pencil who would leave no script unturned. Frontline would not be what it is without Lou Wiley. There have been hundreds and hundreds of Frontline films, 550 or so. Each one of them would take six, nine months, a year to make. Extraordinary efforts, book-length research behind them, hours and hours of interviews. And then on a Tuesday night at 9 o'clock, we threw it in the air. Some of it hit the satellite and bounced back, and the rest went to Mars. Television slipped through the fingers. We hoped that somebody tuned in at the right time and waited for the postcards to tell us what they thought. Then there was one documentary that made a real difference in the way we think about what we do. It was back in the early days of the World Wide Web, way back, 1995. Frontline was about to broadcast a film about the tragic confrontation in Waco, Texas. We'd got hold of tape recordings of secret negotiations between the FBI and the Branch Davidians 
but we could only use part of them in the documentary, a few minutes at most. We were sitting around the office and I was asking if we could make some radio out of them and someone, we can't remember who, probably the intern, said you can put them on the web. And we said, really? He said, yeah, there's something called real audio. And we said, well, what else can we put up there? Can we put up interviews? And the uh, producer said, but those are our outtakes. And we said, no, no, but we could publish the interviews. What about the documents? What about the whole film? Well, they said, well, you can't quite do that yet. But anyway, we did put it up. And as best we know, that frontline website, Waco, the inside story, was one of the first deep content editorial websites in history. And then we did it the week after and the week after. Not only that, but publishing those documents and those interviews had made our journalism transparent. It was an, a moment that really made us stop and think about what we were doing. Anybody could hold our documentary up against the primary materials, test our conclusions. It was a profound act, a kind of big bang moment, a real change in the contract between the viewer and the producer. From then on, we did all the time. Now for the first time, serious work on television could have the weight of permanence. It has great implications. You're doing it for the long view and for the viewer to find whenever he or she wants. And it's a clear challenge to the old broadcast order. By 2000, Frontline was streaming its own video. We built our own video player for the website. We added timed links to other materials and other journalism. We'd taken the bright line of the documentary narrative, embedded it in its context. So now, when a Frontline film travels out, away from our website, syndicated to ever, wants to feature it. The plan is for it to carry all those links, that intellectual armature with it. Today there are over 80 films on that website and a program like Bush's War has had over 6 million video views. Obama's War had about 2 million video views within the first several weeks after it was broadcast. And our viewers find us, their thousands of comments, their engagement, their arguments, makes our stories more robust, our journalism richer. What started with our Waco film has become an essential part of our identity. Recently, I spoke at a breakfast at my local Rotary Club. Afterwards, the pastor of the Old North Church, the con local congregational church, came up to me. He told me that he'd been contacted by an old college friend he'd not heard from for years. Apparently, his friend had been in the ATF, alcohol, tobacco, firearms, and he wanted to talk to the pastor. As it turned out, the former ATF agent was haunted by guilt. He'd been involved in the death of one of the Branch Davidians at the first confrontation in Waco. The pastor told me that in order to call him back and counsel him, he'd gone to the web, searched Waco, and the most useful place he'd found to help understand what had happened to his friend was the Frontline website, our very first from almost 15 years before. Here's where I think all this is taking us. We're very proud of the collaboration with ProPublica and the Times-Picayune that was honored here tonight, Law and Disorder. There's lots of talks of talk about journalistic partnerships these days, but this one for me is of a new order. Our producer, Tom Jennings, sits in the ProPublica newsroom next to A.C. Thompson. He's been reporting as well as shooting, gathering over 35 hours of video as the investigation has been unfolding. With the Times-Picayune publishing in print as well, we're in the process of inventing a new set of working relationships. This is all new territory for us, 
The documentary elements are a work in progress. We haven't made the film yet, and we don't know when we'll broadcast. But as we build out our respective websites around this work, it may not be entirely coincidental that new breaks in the cases are emerging and with admissions of police misconduct. And I know that when we do broadcast a powerful documentary with millions of viewers, we will drive the interest in the work even further. The reporters will keep digging and the story will keep getting richer. This is a new kind of editorial symbiosis between print and broadcast and online. And it's also about fighting for the idea of the deep and complex story. I don't need to tell you about the challenge for our attention these days. You can read a very good and long article about it in last Sunday's New York Times by Michiko Kakatani. But there's a real threat to the kind of journalistic narrative that has been the hallmark of Frontline. So our challenge is how to get people to keep paying attention. Well, for a start, we have to keep doing really good work in our broadcast films. And we have to take our values into the new media space. We have no choice but to do that. And that means we have to work on a very high order of excellence. We have to pick strong stories, forge trusting relationships with new partners. We have to design our co-productions to work not just online, but on the new mobile devices like the iPad, to integrate print reporting, video storytelling in a new vernacular. This is extraordinarily interesting and challenging, but it's also exhilarating. <clears throat> when I pick up my Kindle and get hooked by a good nonfiction book, I can feel all the potential of the next generation of devices. If we take the stories we are working on, and with really first-rate writing and fine filmmaking, fold those two together, we're already ahead in the new world of e-publishing. <clears throat> That's the promise of a collaboration like Law and Disorder. We have the media resources that most conventional publishers can't match. We could beat them at this new game. I have a strong belief in the power of great stories, well told, to have an enduring appeal, even in the face of all the distractions. But there's, and I think there's an enormous, intelligent audience out there, millions, who buy and read books, who care about ideas, and have, for the most part, given up on the idea of television, delivering them smart and literate journalism. Now we have the technology to share our work at any time, and for years to come, and for people to pass around. They will come and find us wherever we are, and we will find them. So we need to work with our journalism partners to put our collective energies into organizing, designing, and syndicating our work. It's going to take a lot of these kinds of experiments to figure it out. It's all about new ways of thinking and working and understanding each other, and not on the level of executives who make high-flown promises of partnerships, but where people sit at desks next to each other and do the work. <clears throat> I've talked a lot, but bear with me for a few minutes. Um, I've spent my career in public television. I occasionally wonder about that, turning down the networks and the dollars. But the real reason is that I could never have created Frontline anywhere else. WGBH gave me a home for it. CPB, PBS, and the stations have funded it. But it's really the idea and mission of public broadcasting that has sustained it. I believe deeply in that idea. But it needs reinvigoration. We have a system of local stations who are struggling to hold on to a broadcast model that's outdated. 
Falling membership only leads to more pledge drives, and sometimes it seems that the main purpose for many of those stations is simply to raise funds for their own survival. So we need an idea that can change the status quo. I'm not alone in believing that we should reinvent public broadcasting around a mission for journalism. Radio has already shown the way. Television now has to step up and do a lot more. Together, they could become formidable. It's also the best hope for the local stations. Imagine joining some of the new online journalism startups with public broadcasters. What better way to embrace journalism but to bring it inside? Office space in our buildings, all those bricks and mortar built over years of capital campaigns, and start recruiting a new media generation with their great new HD cameras, their laptop edit editing, and their web savvy. Open up their studios and begin practicing journalism on air and online. It will, of course, be challenging at the local level. Taking aim at City Hall, the state capital, powerful financial interests, will take courage and leadership, the kinds of editorial predictions I was given at WGBH. But if the station hires a good managing editor and adopts a code of journalistic practices, it can erect a firewall between the licensee, the board, whoever, and the journalists. Some stations are doing that, and all it needs is a couple of dozen more in regions around the country for public broadcasters to begin a public media transformation. And those stations should be rewarded with funding, encouraged by CPB and the public financing system to do just that, live up to their public interest obligations. Otherwise, they will and should become irrelevant. Which comes to the second part on the national level. What we need most in public television to match our colleagues in radio is great journalism. Much more of it. So this is what I'd suggest. Put together a public journalism fund, foundations, individuals, public money. And we go out and simply get together the best journalists we can hire. That's exactly what ProPublic has done. We can make sure also to bring in a new generation of reporters who are used to the daily demands, the drumbeat, of reporting in the online world. And then we open up a new public media space online to publish in that space between radio and television and to use the programs on both media to drive attention back to those online and print stories. The key for a series like Frontline is to integrate our productions into that real and virtual newsroom and to make sure that we set editorial agendas to support each other. I also know my colleagues in public television need and want access to this kind of quality of reporting, so they have every imperative to do so as well. If we do this smartly, we'll get a lot of attention. Public broadcasting will immediately become more relevant to the national conversation, attract some of the best talents in journalism, and we capture a key piece of the journalism landscape. This is not one more aggregation site or collection of bloggers, but concentrates on enterprise reporting. That's going to be the most valuable commodity around in a universe of instant news and disposable punditry. If we also partner with other new public media enterprises like the other nonprofit investigative entities and the existing assets of public radio and television, you can see the outlines of a powerful new journalistic enterprise. It can have the sort of gravitational weight that will rearrange the universe of public media. It has a feedback loop. It will change the ecology of our broadcast schedule. New programs have to come out of it, in turn driving viewers back to the continuing journalism. 
Compared to any other new media startup, this has an enormous asset. That network of local stations and community connections and their new journalistic calling. The stations will be getting a new source of programming for their communities. The network has bureaus and the best of those stories become part of the national front page. And here's where we are different from most new media journalism startups. This is a business plan that works. It's been proven. Membership. People give to public broadcasting in ways that few other institutions can match. Why is that? Well, according to the Roper poll, public broadcasting is far and away, away <clears throat> the most trusted entity in the country. It's also a kind of civic trust. That's because the government, in effect, says it is, puts tax dollars down to prove it. There's an argument that that's why, perhaps, we as citizens, in turn, give to it in such significant amounts. It's a contract unique to public broadcasting. So that's what distinguishes this business plan. If you add in revenues from philanthropy and public money from the congressional appropriation, you have a membership-driven, publicly-supported, non-profit model for enterprise journalism. And back to that issue of trust, we have a record of fairness. At a time when many media enterprises are taking a partisan stance, when cable news and websites publish from their political perspectives, there has to be some place for the honest broker. That's our real birthright as public interest broadcasters and journalists. It's becoming an old-fashioned idea, but I deeply believe it will become increasingly valuable. And it's the people who value fairness and honesty who will support it financially and politically. And that's important because this reinvention is a political challenge of the highest order. At the heart of the big idea is more public funding. It will require the attention of Congress and the administration the setting aside of egos and unprecedented partnerships. But it's essential for our survival and the important idea that has been public broadcasting. And that's my selfish dream, that Frontline will be there in the future, a part of something bigger, and proof that this sort of journalism matters. Thank you again for this award. Thank you for listening. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So we have time for some uh, questions. Uh, uh, if you would please identify yourself, and um, we do ask uh, that it be a question and not a statement. Uh, <laughs> Maybe I can get you started, David. I, I, I'm curious about um, how your Frontline's business model might have changed over those 27 years in terms of, uh, you know, how do you keep doing these documentaries, which are quite expensive. They are expensive. And um, sort of over time how that's evolved and whether you see um, kind of, you know, so many places now are under financial stress and the quality. I think depends significantly on having the money to be able to do these right. things well, to do the deep journalism, not the quick journalism. Right. And uh, could you talk a little bit directly sure. about Frontline? I mean, Frontline's genesis happened in an extraordinary meeting I had at the Corporation of Public Broadcasting in 
but when was it, 81, 82, Peter, something like that, a man called Lewis Friedman, who was the head of programming at CPB. I went in with my series World doing eight or 10 films a year and said, can we get you know half a million dollars to help us make the series? And he said, what about doing more domestic stories? And I said, mm, yeah, sure. I said, he said, I said, how many? He said, 26. And I, he said, how much would that cost? And, I, and I, I sat there, we went and got a sandwich and I worked it on the back of an envelope. We sort of said, well, that'll be $3 million about, roughly. And he said, well, I'll tell you what, if we put $3 million up this year and $2 million next year and $1 million the year after that, will the stations match that? And I said, all right, we can go and try and ask them. And that's how Frontline started, this extraordinary act, a three-year guarantee from CPB that said, go and see if you can do it. And the stations in that moment, at that time were buying into programming from the producing stations, you know, the stations themselves as part of this membership organization that's public television. So we would go out each year and effectively pitch ourselves to the stations to come in and make up the budget shortfall. So at its heart, Frontline was something that sprang out of this first big act, but also a collective uh, decision on the part of the stations that they would support it. That support is now translated into their membership dues, which are paid to PBS, which get divided into buying what's called the NPS, the National Programming Service, of which Frontline is a part. So the money has come in large part directly out of the stations through PBS to us to run the series. Now the money over the years got sort of slowly, creakingly, you know, got it raised over the years, but also began to hit limits. And for a long time we were, we were left um, holding a kind of plateau. That's when we began going out and searching for co-production dollars, for foundation dollars, and for others to make up the difference. So about a third of Frontline's budget comes from outside of that main appropriation that we get from, from PBS. Um, I, I, I'm on the record, but I can tell you, so I have to be careful here, but I can say that it would not be unlikely to find out quite soon that Frontline's actually getting some more money to be able to go year-round, which is an extraordinary act at this moment. It looks like there's a large, uh, possi great possibility, shall I say, that we will be able to expand the series. Frontline World, which has been the international documentary um, magazine show, is mutating into a both term. It's sort of actually following the model that World came into Frontline. It's becoming um, both a domestic and international magazine program. We'll put more programs on the air and we'll go year round. So uh, I think actually we have and we will always need to be chasing down the additional dollars, but we have, a, we have a, a, uh, in this moment of crisis in journalism, we have a great act of faith coming back from public television to increase the series. Thank you. Please. <clears throat> Hi, um, my name is Michelle. I'm a first year student in the college. And thank you so much for being here. I think your work is incredibly inspirational. Um, I just have a question. I was just wondering what's your opinion on um, this recent phenomenon in uh, broadcast journalism. On the one hand, we have um, like the likes of Anderson Cooper who thinks that journalism should be completely objective. So he believes in just giving the, um, the numbers and the facts and leaving the audience to have a view of themselves. And then on the other hand, we have like uh, Rachel Maddow who not, are not only celebrities in their own rights, but also have a very strong opinion on like some of the things that she reports, so I don't know what, and where do you think like broadcast journalism should move in the future? 
Well, I, my partisanship lies in the idea that we should, uh, we should be fair to the story and that we, uh, we, our job is not to actually project a point of view. We can see this polarization happening between MSNBC and Fox and, and other, other parts of the media where they are. And, and there is talk around, especially in the online world, of echoing or of copying some of the, the, uh, the uh, patterns of, uh, say, European uh, um, journalism, where you know the Guardian and the Telegraph have very particular points of view and, and are very quite declarative about that. Um, we really try to uh, to be um, fair and and a little contrarian, if anything else, and uh, and not try to be too easily pegged. We like to ask tough tough questions of people in power, whether they be Democrats or Republicans. So we and we we, we trust your intelligence. If we lay out the facts to you, that you'll make, you'll come to a conclusion about it. Thank you. Hi, my name is Marilee, and my um, father used to campaign for this brand new pub, um, uh, public stations in the 1950s. He right. traveled around and was very instrumental. Um, my question is, um, do you, how do you get your topics, and are <laughs> uh, I, I, um, do you have some kind of mental checklist that would uh, would lead you to say, well, this is too dangerous, or that that's a little bit, you know, how how do you decide how you know, where to go? All the producers, the best of them, the ones that have been working, the war horses, you know, they've gone into battle year in and year out. They come out of the end of the editing room, sort of, you know, out of the lists, and they and they are um, they're exhausted, and they look at you and they say, what am I going to do next? And uh, you know we do the best we can. And there are times when I say to them, I don't have any more good ideas. I've given them all away to you for too many years. There is a very complicated game we play between the, and it's a kind of intellectual pursuit in a sense. It's between a producer who is very much like any author or any journalist. They tend to have beats. They tend to have ways of approaching the world and looking at it. And you sort of look both for the kind of territory they're comfortable in and like and know how to work in, and the interests that we bubble up in the office in the conversations that we have. And the challenge for us is if we all sit around a group of fairly smart people in the office who read, read everything and have sort of come up with some pretty good ideas, and we all congratulate ourselves and say, that's a really good idea, we probably shouldn't do it, because it's really conventional wisdom at that point, because we don't really know. You've got to try to figure out a way to send somebody in that can bring a fresh angle of vision to some piece of territory and say, how are you going to open, open, the, open a way into the story that's going to be surprising? That's a, that's a funny um, uh, back and forth. That it's partly the research that you support someone to do. And, um, and some people are, are, are in fact, um, a lot better at finding those stories, and others really need to have to be assigned. And so we do a combination of both of those things. Thank you. I have, may have the luxury of doing 50% of the questions, right? <laughs> or the, uh, I, I, I would like to ha have you think a little bit about, or tell us a little bit about, um, how you think about the young audience. I mean, so much Ooh. of what's happening uh, in the news media, uh, you know, relates to changing habits of consumption. And, uh, you know, certainly in terms of the daily news, young people consume much less of that. Uh, 
they tend, uh, to, according to the studies, most of them, that they prefer the shorter form, right. um, your, your, your long form journalism. Right. Uh, so uh, maybe you could say at least how you've been trying to think about that and you, know, and you talked a little bit about you know, going uh, to the phone in some ways and producing content uh, in that way and uh, certainly for, for the most part that usually is a shorter form of presentation. Yeah, I'm, I'm actually less interested in trying to see a front line on an, on an iPhone than I am interested in the new iPad. I am interested in what that object is going to be like. I think this is going to be really, I, I love the Kindle. I find it quite, it works for me. And I can imagine if, uh, if you think about the interactivity that works and the ease of use and the fact that you can turn pages and there's a kind of almost three-dimensionality to this new interface, I think that's, that's something. Plus, the, the way in which the technology is going to work is you're going to be, I'm off your point slightly, but I think it's going to th be able to, th you'll throw it to a screen if you want to sit back and watch. I think you can sit and watch it on the train very comfortably. I think there will be, and I, and I think we are, we are working on kind of book length levels. You know, we're working on that kind of territory where if you make really good narratives, people will watch. They can also bookmark, come back and pick it up and, and keep watching. So I think that's, that, 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 that's what I think is quite exciting about this new, this new marriage that, uh, that can happen in, in, the mobile, in that mobile device. No doubt there will be people who want to watch it on their iPhone too. So... Good. I'm probably not going to. Um, I, I think there are. I assume there's a lot of young people who are also interested in ideas, and I think they will if they get caught by it, and if they watch a chapter of a story that we've done well, will come back to it and find it again and keep going. I think you can actually also pick terrific chapters or acts out of a particular film and uh, an extraordinary story you might have done, and you can separate that out and perhaps send it out into the, into the social networks where it gets passed around, you know, people drop it onto their pages and, you know, uh, and, 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 and share it with friends and pieces of it. And if that, in fact, brings people to say, well, what, that fantastic scene in, in Helmand province that I watched that was passed on to me, the death of a young Marine, Marty Smith did in, the, in Obama's war, um, riveting piece of journalism, uh, get somebody to sort of say, where did that come from? That came from Frontline, from that place. They'll come back and find something else. So I think there's a way to engage those people. I think there's a way to use the social networks that we're still, we're still um, working on. Um, but I, I, uh, I'm also assuming that there's a lot of people who aren't young who are interested in these ideas. And so that they'll be around for quite a while. Please, uh, John. Uh, John. John Reedy, Jornstein Advisory Board. Uh, just a quick question in your vision of the future. Mm -hmm. um, do you see any possibility of public broadcasting stations uh, working with uh, the local uh, uh, network stations? I mean, when, once it's a network owned and operated, it sounds almost impossible, but could you do joint ventures. I mean, I just think it's, it's Well, we, there's no reason why not. Uh, first of all, I think there's some technical questions where I know I was in Denver get, speaking to the public television station in Denver to find out that they're going to share master control with the local NBC station so that they can, you know, share some costs and, and take care of some tech, technological questions. But one of the earliest um, co-productions, we did a lot of co-productions with the BBC and, 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 and ITV in England 
But uh, one of the early co-productions we did was with WCCO, the great um, uh, CBS station in Minneapolis, and they did a terrific documentary unit at the time in the early 80s. So we did co-productions with them. There's absolutely no reason why we went to, um, uh, uh, we've, we've talked about uh, doing other collaborations with commercial television. I, I don't see a problem doing it. Terrific. We do it with ABC. You talked about uh, having the luxury to develop a story, to yeah. uh, spend weeks or months working on it, and then an uninterrupted hour to present it. So I was wondering what you thought about the 24-hour news cycle. <laughs> well, I mean, it's all that stuff that's scrolling along the screen all the time that just distracts me. We were just, we're, we're finishing up a film on Haiti. And, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're sort of late. We were there within days, and we shot for a while. But we're now making a rather more considered film. We're not rushing it on the air within a week of, of, of the event. And I was sort of saying to my producer, well, you know, there's some of these scenes people have seen. And he said, yes, but there was no ticker tape on it. You know, there's all that ticker tape. There, there is a way in which that material is incredibly disposable. The imagery comes by. It is really um, packaged and, and, and disposed of and, and, and tossed aside. And, and commercials break it up. And if you watch, actually, a CNN documentary, um, there's very little actual content that, that doesn't get sort of repeated at the, at the end of the segment and repeated again at the beginning of the next segment, and there's a lot of sort of flash in between. And when you start to look at how much real editorial content is there, there's not that much to add up at the end of it all, and no one's actually watching it consistently all the way through. The, the news cycle, uh, they destroy attention span. They're actually not that interested in t attention span. Um, they want to keep people, you know, constantly fed the fast food of news. And so we're in a different game. We're, we're in a very different game, a different rhythm, a different... It's not to say we should be old-fashioned in our grammar, uh, the syntax of the films we make. I think there's a, there's, a, there's a fantastic new technology available to us that's these new cameras, the editing equipment that we can do, the vision of a lot of young... And, and media literate um, producers and reporters and camera people who come to us and whose work we see, they have um, they have a sharp they have sharp eyes they have uh, they have great energy they are coming at the storytelling in some fresh ways and I, I think some of that's going to invigorate us and it's going to give us a kind of pace and rhythm to the to the stories we do, um, but but it's a different it's a different uh, it's a different narrative tradition. I think we have time for one more question, oh. please. As a uh, television photojournalist, I may be a rare species here, um, <laughs> but uh, I appreciate the opportunity to, huge fan of Frontline and, and the pictures. Um, in, you know, the recent years, uh, it seems like producers and stations, television stations, um, the pictures, the photographers, you know, there's been a lot of loss there um, as far as, you know, being employed. So I guess the, the question for you is, um, producers are shooting things, they're reporting, right. that's good. There's, you know, there's no doubt that there's a lot of talented folks, but do you see that that's a problem taking away the pictures? Because they're wearing so many hats. Um, just oh. the future of, of pictures and, and you know, especially with the iPad, you were just talking about the iPad. 
seems like there should be more emphasis yeah. on the pictures and quality pictures. I, th I think there is. And I mean, we, we've put a pretty high bar on the kind of production uh, quality that we, we try to put into Frontline. At the same time, we're making poor Tom Jennings work on his own and shoot his own stuff because it was a, initially a financial uh, decision that we would sort of see how this new process went, but we're clearly understanding that, that that's too much to put on one person, that you can't really report and produce and shoot and cut. It doesn't work if you're going to do anything of real quality. So those are, those are calculations we have to work out. I think there are times when some of the, um, uh, these um, smart young video journalists who do really good work, and we were working on our Haiti film and we had a conversation with Adam Davidson of NPR's Planet Money and he said, oh, I'm going to Haiti next week and uh, I'd love to do some work with you. So we assigned Travis Fox, who was at the Washington Post, who's a very good both still photographer and, cinema and a videographer, to go with him to shoot an additional set of stories that will run both on NPR's website, on our website, and will also end up on the NewsHour. That's done in a kind of, you know, a little bit of the guerrilla fashion, but those are opportunities that you grab and those chances. Otherwise, you want to really create a film that has a look, a feel, an image system. We're talking about narrative journalism here. It has to, it has to uh, have acts. It has to have dramaturgy. It needs all of the bells and whistles, and that we don't want to give up on. David Fanning, thank you. Thank you very much. We have something that's very Harvard looking. Thank you. Thanks very much. David Fanning, thank you so much. Thank you. So I'd like, I'd like to thank David, uh, all of the finalists, uh, the award winners, uh, the selection committees for this wonderful uh, evening. Uh, tomorrow morning uh, on the uh, fifth floor of Taubman, uh, we're having a, um, a discussion panel uh, at which the uh, six finalists will be in, uh, as well as the, the, uh, uh, the special certificate that we gave. Uh, They'll be part of the panel discussion uh, where they'll talk about sort of going behind uh, where they came to these great stories. Uh, you're all invited. Uh, that starts at 9. If you get there a little early, uh, 8.30 on, uh, uh, there's a buffet breakfast. So uh, a little bit of an incentive. Uh, uh, but, but thank you so much. You've been a wonderful audience. And uh, I, I think it's been a great evening. And uh, I, I can't say much more on behalf of the Shorenstein Center, except we're so proud uh, to be able to honor this, uh, this wonderful work and to the Greenfield uh, family, the Goldsmith uh, Fund, um, for supporting it. So thank you all.